ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I think the reason it's been such a heated debate is that Labor and the Greens both think they're on to a winner. The Greens uh, want to appeal to young people and renters, but Labor thinks that they're getting mileage bashing the Greens for being too extreme and winning middle-of-the-road voters with that argument, so that they have been both quite intransigent about this bill. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents... We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Welcome to The Party Room. I'm Fran Kelly on Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And I'm Laura Tingle, joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri Nations here at Parliament House. I'm filling in for PK as she jets off to the Gama Festival in Arnhem Land. And I can't wait for her to tell us all about it on the podcast next week, which I'm sure she will do. Laura, it's great to have you here, co-host this week of our podcast. Let's talk politics, because let's face it, that's what we love to do. Parliament is back after the long winter break. I'm not sure, though, Laura, that the government is back with alacrity. I mean, they've got a welter of problems facing them, many of them to some degree out of their control thinking cost of living generally, interest rates, even the referendum, the housing crisis even, which the government has now taken head on, setting in motion a double dissolution trigger over its $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund. Paul Carp, the chief political correspondent at The Guardian, will make his debut here on The Party Room shortly to discuss some of these issues. But Laura, you and I have lived through a few parliamentary cycles in our time. After the honeymoon is over, then comes the letdown. Is that what we're seeing here? The Albanese government had a strong start after 10 years in the wilderness. Now the grind of government goes on, not just the glory. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a combination, Fran. I mean, yes, you do have that honeymoon effect. But I think with this government, look, it it started off with really low expectations in a way that people sort of didn't really think that they were going to do very much. And then they did get through a lot before Christmas last year. A lot of uh, legislation went through. But we are now at that sort of deathly hallows in the middle, if you like, uh, where we've we've had all of that stuff happen there's a lot that's just, as you say, bogged down um, and which was always going to be like this. I mean, I think, you know, when I've been uh, talking to you and PK on, on the podcast earlier in the year, I sort of was talking about this, the fact that whatever you think of the voice, it was just going to chew up so much oxygen, so much political energy. And that's clearly what's happened. And you have got all these other issues like the economy and everybody saying, you know, one, it's hurting, but two, oh my God, where's it going? Are we going to have a recession? I think that's made it all really difficult. People are hurting. I mean, if you think about it though, in terms of the way people are experiencing life at the moment, it's really interesting that they're hurting, but they're not necessarily blaming the government for it. But we've got Parliament back this week after the winter break and just got that sense of uh, everything being very uh, bogged down because there's a whole range of issues on which there seems to be fairly intractable opposition uh, from 
either the crossbenchers and or the opposition, whether it's the housing fund, petroleum resource rent tax, or even sort of some argy-bargy earlier in the week about Job Seeker, which sort of dissipated fairly fast. Is there inevitably a tipping point, though, where people aren't necessarily blaming government for cost of living yet, but there are signs? You know, I know the Liberals are now saying that the Fadden by-election, there's signs in there that some voters who might have been expected to support Labor actually gave them a bit of a whack because of interest rates, you know, the young home buyers, for instance. Is that a tipping point? And, and on The Voice, yeah, you're right, it was always going to eat up political energy and maybe political capital. But this week it's tipped into what I think is tricky territory for the government. It's the issue of treaty. Now, the PM dismisses the treaty talk as a red herring introduced by the No campaign. Do you support a treaty? Well, the processes are occurring. But but federally you've committed to the Uluru Statement. No, yeah, and, and it's not a treaty, a. Yeah, no, potentially many treaties, right? Yeah, that's occurring. That's like saying, do you do you support the sun coming up? It's occurring. What the No campaign want to do is to focus on everything that's not happening and nothing that is. Now, I'm not sure what the PM was saying in the middle of that grab, Laura, but the point is he was uncomfortable talking about treaty. And I know it's dangerous politically because it's easy to mount a scare campaign around it, but the Prime Minister did promise on election night to introduce the Uluru Statement from the heart in full. That means voice, treaty, truth. So they should have seen this kind of attack coming, I would have thought. But their deflection hasn't really been very satisfying, has it? It's not clear what their deflection could be, really, Fran, because, as you say, they've committed to those three things, they, uh, three elements of uh, Uluru, but they haven't said they'd do it all this term. But it's one of those things where, uh, and we saw it in that interview he uh, he had on RN, where he's saying, well, yeah, we want to do treaty, but it doesn't say it has to be a federal government one, but when he says that, it sounds like he's trying to avoid the subject. Mm. Um, and he's saying, well, we're not doing it this term, uh, which is reasonable enough. And he's trying to drag it back just to the one issue that is before us. But I think it's been really very clever politics by the No campaign and the opposition to start mixing all of this stuff up. And, you know, already we've seen these pamphlets out in um, letterboxes, usually unauthorised, saying if you sign up to the referendum, we get a treaty. As a result of the treaty, your taxes will go up mm. and you may lose your land. You know, so it's it's once again potent misinformation and disinformation uh, and they aren't good at arguing any of this stuff as they haven't been really good at arguing the case in general for what it is that the voice can do in a practical sense for Indigenous people. But what you do see coming out in uh, the polls is that people sort of resent the amount of time being invested in the voice as a political discussion mm. when they say we should be discussing the things that affect us like higher interest rates and the cost of living. Yeah. So how does the government straddle that? How do they get that balance right? And because they've got an opposition that is always going to be publicly on the front foot accusing them of that. I mean, that's what Angus Taylor's whole mantra is at the moment. Yeah, well, it, it is. And I think, you know, the PM's got this... I mean, I've I've always thought it was, you know, really questionable position, which is I can't be out there leading the debate on The Voice because it then just becomes a political discussion mm. and a political battle between Peter Dutton and I. Well, it is. So the coalition is running The Voice in, in a negative sense really, really hard. And uh, you've got this sort of ambivalence from the Prime Minister in particular about 
wanting to engage in it, you know, in a full, full throttled way at all, and then not having the arguments there um, or not sounding uh, like he's on top of it mm. um, to sort of really be able to say, look, this is ridiculous. Yes, we've said we want to uh, look at treaty. Treaties are happening. The world is not ending at the state level. Uh, but we have not committed and we are not committing to doing these things. That will be the subject of another discussion after another election campaign when voters will have the you know, opportunity to give a signal to uh, both sides of politics about what they think about that. But he can't say that because he has committed to implement the Uluru Statement from the heart in full. He has, but he hasn't said he'd do it this term, oh, has no. he? He did say, look, we are not committed to doing that this term. And that's what they've got to really sort of nail as a position and say people will have a chance to say what they think about that at the next polls. Yeah, I just feel like they really should have been better prepared for this attack oh, yeah, because, absolutely. you know, you could have seen it coming from a mile out. I yep. think this is the perfect time to bring in our guest. Should we do it? Let's do it. Paul Karp, Chief Political Correspondent with The Guardian. Welcome to the party room. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, welcome, Paul. It's nice of you to have made the long trek, the 15 metres down the corridor from The Guardian office. <laughs> Neighbourinos in the press gallery, for Indeed. sure. Yeah, Indeed. well, that's why we've got you both here, because you're right in the thick of this week. Paul, great to have you join us here. Let, let's talk about housing, because everybody else is, let's face it. The $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, or the HAF, as it's called, it's the signature policy for the government, failed to pass the Senate before Parliament went on the winter break, with the government accusing the Greens and the Coalition of teaming up to block social housing for those in the need. But the Greens, of course, say the government's plan is paltry, it does nothing to alleviate the rental crisis, and now the government's reintroduced the bill. But are there any signs that this outcome will be different this time? What negotiation are we seeing going on here? Well, I think that Labor and the Greens are still talking to each other, but at the point that the Greens and the Coalition delayed the bill last time, the Greens were very specific that the thing that they wanted to see was progress at National Cabinet on a rental freeze or limits on unlimited rent increases. And National Cabinet meets again this month in August and again in October. So although uh, Labor introduced the bill again in the House of Representatives this week, I don't think we're expecting any kind of breakthrough uh, until there is progress limiting rent increases to one once a year, for example, or ideally I think the Greens want, you know, the ACT-style system of having uh, inflation plus 10% as, as a cap on rent. Mm. They're still talking, but no breakthrough, really. How realistic is it that... that National Cabinet is going to agree to that. I mean, the PM keeps saying the Greens don't understand how the Federation works, that I don't have, you know, the federal government doesn't have control of rents, which is true. I mean, are these expectations sort of beyond the pale, really, in terms of the federal government, what they can do? I think the Greens' plan of $1 billion on the table to incentivise states to all do the same thing uh, on rent caps is unlikely. But what you could see is landlords can only increase rent once a year, which is common in, in other jurisdictions, mm. although the ACT is the only one with a cap on the amount. So I, I think we could see progress on unlimited rent rises, but not the, the full shebang of nationwide you know, caps. And, and I suppose the, the politics of it is, 
is uh, in a pragmatic sense. Prime Minister keeps saying, look, I don't control rents. You know, this mm. has nothing to do with me. He's basically just trying to shunt it off. And he's got a really good reason for doing that uh, because he doesn't control them. But the fact that they do have to wait for the uh, National Cabinet means that it's just sitting there, which sort of works for the Greens. They can keep banging the drum about it. It's sort of an interesting standoff. I mean, I think the uh, Prime Minister probably had no choice but to bring the legislation back because otherwise, if you think about it, the government doesn't actually have a housing policy at a time of a housing crisis. But, I mean, the Greens have an interest in this because they can keep running it. But from the government's perspective, they needed to bring this legislation back because we we do have a housing crisis and this is their only policy. So they have no choice but to be prosecuting it. I think they remain confident that this will be a winner for them. We'll have to wait and see on that. Uh, It's a question of the extent to which either the government or the Greens end up being uh, sort of hostage to or victims of or the winners from National Cabinet, given it can be an unruly beast and it will largely depend on how willing the states are to play the game on rents which, of course, depends on what's happening in politics at yeah. their level. I think the reason it's been such a heated debate is that Labor and the Greens both think they're on to a winner. The Greens uh, want to appeal to young people and renters, but Labor thinks that they're getting mileage bashing the Greens for being too extreme and winning middle-of-the-road voters with that argument. So that they have been both quite intransigent about this bill. Mm. The other thing on timing is that in order for it to be a double dissolution trigger, there has to be three months between the failure to pass and the second attempt at it. So we're going to be having a vote in, in October anyway. Yeah. yeah, so that brings us to the notion of a potential double dissolution election, which is, you know, what setting up a double dissolution trigger leads us to. The Prime Minister has ruled out an election this year. They won't be going to the polls this year, but we're determined to get this legislation passed. We want it to be passed. The way in which you uh, rule out having a double dissolution election is to have no triggers. That's the way that you you rule it out. Uh, I want this legislation to be passed. I can't be more serious Okay, so it sounds like a live threat, but let me ask both of you from from your experience, Laura and Paul, what you're hearing, that that notion of if he he does pull the trigger, say, early next year, he does call a a double dissolution election, that standoff that you're talking about, both sides thinking they've got the Trump card here, the Greens saying, well, the government's doing nothing for renters, and we know that's critical amongst young voters, and the government saying, well, the Greens are standing in the way of affordable housing. Who's got the Trump card, and do you think the Prime Minister would risk it. Look, I, I think when it actually comes to it becoming a double dissolution trigger and having an, you know, inverted commas, early election, so we're talking, say, March next year onwards, it then becomes a question of the context, um, which you'd know, well, Fran, it becomes a question of has the economy fallen off the cliff in the meantime, for example, which I think will be a huge thing. If if, if things go really badly, I mean, the Reserve Bank and the government sort of seem to be saying, oh, we, we think we've got this narrow path through that it'll all be fine. I hope they're right. But if the economy is going to fall off a cliff, it's going to be towards the end of this year, at which point it sort of won't matter what the housing debate is in the same way it does now, you know, because the discussion will be very different. And one of the arguments that's been made to me about the housing fund is that one of the reasons the government wants it through is it may well be that it becomes uh, something that they can say, well, this will be a stimulus for an economy that's you know in trouble. Mm. So I think 
all sorts of other factors come into play at that point of time. What do you think, Paul? I think early elections are always difficult because it looks opportunistic, like they're not doing the job and they're doing a a power grab. Uh, But he did tip his hand, Anthony Albanese, in an interview earlier this week where he said, well, we could go into 2025 and still use it as a double dissolution Mm. trigger. So I think it's more about a threat of clearing out the Senate and trying to whittle down the, the, the Greens' numbers of 12 or 11 now, uh, minus Lydia Thorpe, senators, uh, rather than it is necessarily wanting to go early. Yeah. But it's always good for them to have the option. Yeah. That's a bit that I don't quite understand. I, I mean, apart from the fact that there's a history of double solutions often um, actually presenting a really colourful Senate, Yes, um, it's not clear to me, given the momentum of the whole Greens' crossbench movement, shall we say, that they could be that confident that they would necessarily strip the Greens of a lot of influence. I think it's a highly risky manoeuvre because they've already got a very left-wing Senate. Being able to pass things with the, with the Greens and, and Lydia Thorpe and Pocock or the Greens and Jackie Lambie is already a dream come true for a Labor government. But I mean, they've got Jackie Lambie here, for instance, now calling on the opposition to step up and pass the housing fund. She's giving them a whack every time you look around, isn't she? Yeah, and the coalition has has got off pretty lightly for blocking this in, in, in I think, a, a move to create maximum chaos for the government, and they're, they're really enjoying standing back and, and watching that. So, yeah, I, I do think a double dissolution is a risky manoeuvre. It is possible that an even more fragmented crossbench would give them other options, like, you know, could legalise cannabis be a, a, a pathway to passing legislation in a, in a future parliament after well, a double dissolution? that'd be a way for them to get more young voters probably. <laughs> um, switching topics now, we, Laura and I talked earlier about the, this government, you know, hitting a bit of a sort of midterm blues where they've still got a lot of policies to roll out, but there's a whole lot of factors that just, you know, determine really where they're stuck and the voice is one of them for now. But first term oppositions can be derailed by the Times too and their past record. This week, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, is feeling some heat. As Home Affairs Minister, he was allegedly briefed in 2018 about an AFP investigation into allegations of bribery involving a person whose company was providing services to the offshore detention centre in Nauru. Now, after this apparent briefing, the department then renewed that company's multi-million dollar contract a month later. Here's what Peter Dutton had to say about that. I'm saying that we've uh, checked our records. I don't have any record of it uh, in my office. I don't have any recollection of uh, having been briefed in relation to it. And the AFP have advised that they don't have any detail of what was briefed uh, or the response or anything of that nature. Um, The point I made today in my press conference was that uh, in in any case, it's inconsequential because as Minister, uh, I have absolutely nothing to do with the procurement arrangements, uh, which under the Commonwealth guidelines are... Uh, undertaken by the secretary or a delegate um, within the department. Mm. Now, Paul, I think inconsequential is never a good word for a minister or former minister to use about alleged multi-million dollar contracts that may have found their way into bribes. But aside from that, can Peter Dutton shrug this off because it's his department that grants these contracts, not the minister? Is this getting a bit too close to RoboDebt? Yeah, it's technically true that the department is responsible for the procurement, but if it was significant enough for the AFP to brief the minister, does the minister not retain a discretion to tell 
the department that we shouldn't have anything to do with someone who is being investigated for alleged bribery. Like, I, I think there is clearly a, a role for ministerial responsibility there. So inconsequential was putting it too highly, I think. Part of the problem with all of this is you sort of get the sense of this mindset, and we saw it in some of the evidence from Michael Pozzullo in various committee hearings, which is... And we saw it when it came up with, I think, Paladin, uh, the other company earlier on, which was yeah. in the middle of controversy. This idea, look, we didn't have much choice. There weren't a lot of options. Either people didn't want to tender for it or they weren't capable of tendering for it. Uh, at another level, there is this sort of view that, look, you're going to get corruption in these really small communities, in these small societies, somewhere like Nauru, because... You know, basically, you've just got an elite who controls everything and you're going to have to deal with them. Mm. Is that fair enough? Well, it's the reason that in setting up offshore detention somewhere, Australia is looking for states that are weak enough, client states that are going to do what they're told by Australia, but then suddenly, uh, you know, expect a superior quality of, of governance, that the decisions there aren't going to be infected by bribery or, or corruption of any kind. So, I mean, I'm going to be interested to see how Dennis Richardson, in the review that the Albanese government has, has ordered, how he is going to, you know, avoid direct commentary on the decision to set up offshore detention to begin with and just narrowly keep the focus on management of contracts because arguably uh, you know one follows from from the other when you're when you're setting up in somewhere like Nauru. Yeah, well I guess that's why the government's ordered that kind of inquiry not a full royal commission which some have been asking for. Um just staying with ghosts of government past former prime minister Scott Morrison also in the spotlight following the fallout from the Robodebt Royal Commission report now Scott Morrison, the member for Cook, was overseas when that report was handed down. He issued a denial at the time, but he took the first opportunity he could to stand in the parliament and deliver a personal statement on this matter. This campaign of political lynching has once again included the weaponisation of a quasi-legal process to launder the government's political vindictiveness. They need to move on. Now, Robodebt, the findings were particularly scathing about Scott Morrison. It found as the relevant minister, he allowed Cabinet to be misled over whether or not legislation was needed to raise debts. The Minister for Government Services these days is Bill Shorten. He wasn't particularly impressed by Scott Morrison's parliamentary statement. The victims of Robodebt never had their legal costs paid for, never had the chance to see the evidence put against them. The member for Cook is a bottomless well of self-pity and not a drop of mercy for all of the real victims of robo-debt. Bill Shorten taking a pretty obvious and cheap shot, but Paul, what was Scott Morrison's strategy here? Is he just trying to save his legacy, trying to save some political skin, or is he just is this a sign he's going to fight this? Well, colleagues of, of Morrison have said that although there were indications that he might leave Parliament mid-year, that the adverse findings in the Royal Commission report have made it more likely that he will dig in because he doesn't want the perception that he's um, leaving under any kind of cloud or, or that he's disgraced by the report. Uh, it was a very forceful defence, but it, it really relies on him blaming the advice that he got from his department in a, in a context where the Royal Commission found that he should have asked more questions when there was an executive minute suggesting mm. legislation was required for robo-debt. He says that was superseded by a new policy proposal that said that legislation wasn't required, but there is a, a surprising incuriosity about what changed in between those two things, that he thought that something as significant as this, billions and billions of dollars of 
what turned out to be illusory savings, that he wouldn't be curious how his department had squared that circle and legislation wasn't no longer required. Well, especially since the executive minute had a section, I think it was 12 pages in the middle, which just happened to be the bit that related to the fact that you needed legislation. And when he sent it back to the department, he withheld that bit so that the bit that the department got didn't have any reference to legislation. And when he was asked about that at the Royal Commission, he said, oh, well, that was because I wanted to study it more closely. Mm. So well, something so he had to hang on to the bit of paper. He, he hung <laughs> on to the piece of paper allegedly because he wanted to study it more closely and really be on top of it, which is all the more reason to think that he should have been aware when it came up as a new policy proposal that, oh, miraculously, it didn't need legislation. Um, it, it doesn't really stack up. So just to finish off on this then, I mean, Paul, what do you think Scott Morrison's colleagues are feeling about this. I'm suggesting it didn't really help Peter Dutton, Scott Morrison standing up as he did, though there's nothing Peter Dutton can do about that, I suppose. But more generally, how are they feeling about his continued presence in the parliament, given the um, the ghost of robo-debt? Well, he does seem increasingly isolated. There were only a handful of his colleagues in, in the chamber for that uh, explanation and defence. I mean, Peter Dutton has backed him to some extent saying that it's his right to to make that forceful defence and his right to choose when to leave Parliament. But I I think their preference would be that he he shuffled along so that they weren't stuck uh, defending the legacy of the previous Parliament going into the next election. They were pretty stark pictures, weren't they? They, You just had uh, Scott Morrison with two people with him and the duty MP at the desk who has to be there. It was uh, And nobody else in the Parliament there to listen to him at all. And mm. he's doing his own heckling uh, and interventions when, uh, interjections when Bill Shorten is muddying him up during question time, but his, his colleagues aren't giving any voice to that. Yeah. Paul, fantastic to have you join us on the podcast. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming and talking to us. Thanks, Laura. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. Well, the bells are ringing and that means it's time for question time here on The Party Room and this week's question comes from Jamie. Regarding this possible double dissolution, possible election, would the government think of this as an opportunity to get a mandate on axing the Stage 3 tax cuts or at least amending them? Or was it even too risky for the government to go to election if the voice doesn't pass and interest rates don't even fall a little bit? Love your show a lot. A fan. That's always really nice. Look, Yeah, I, thanks, I, I, Jamie. Fran, I think the indications are and have been for some months that they don't want to drop the Stage 3 tax cuts. Whether that's a good idea or not is another matter, but apart from the fact that the Prime Minister has basically said, look, we believe that we've got to restore faith in um, the community and uh, you know, we said we wouldn't get rid of the Stage 3 tax cuts, so it would be a massive breach of faith to do that, even uh, at an election campaign. And also, uh, I've noticed even in the last week or two, he's been saying that the t- Stage 3 tax cuts come in at quite low income levels uh, and has been rejecting their characterisation as something that only go to the really toffy rich people. Uh, he's sort of saying that they are actually tax cuts for the battlers. So mm-hmm. that's probably the strongest indication that they wouldn't do that, I think. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't want to do that, I agree, but I'm still standing by my position, which I think they will ameliorate it some way because the the weight of those tax cuts that go to the 
um, high income earners is you know so such huge. a lot, yeah. such a lot at that time of cost of great cost of living pressures on the budget. But just going back to a point you touched on earlier, Laura, and it's something that Jamie mentions there. Mm. If the voice goes down, what yeah. impact does that have on the political dynamics? of this parliament? Well, I think it's going to be massive. I mean, I think it's going to be a massive moment for the country, obviously, as well. Of course, yeah. uh, But I think it will really sort of put wind in the sails of uh, the coalition, which is pretty dejected at the moment. I think it will renew the sort of whole uh, sort of political, tactical low game. Uh, Mm. I mean, it's pretty low already, but I think it will encourage people to keep fighting that uh, the, the sort of the, the lowest sort of common denominator politics and it will obviously also undermine the, the uh, authority of the Prime Minister because he hasn't been able to set the agenda or he will appear to have let it slip through his hand. So I think it would change the dynamic. I think there is an underlying issue here, which is that I think in the Prime Minister's mind, at the last election, everybody said, you know, he should have been doing more. And, you know, remember, everybody was waiting for him to sort of break out. And he was saying he would come out in the final quarter. Mm. I think in his mind, it was that thing of he, that he says, look, you all thought I'd lose and I didn't. Um, so my judgment's good and yours isn't. But what his colleagues will say to you privately in a slightly nervous way is actually your campaign was pretty terrible and we won despite it. That's the blunt version of it. Um, But he didn't have a great campaign. uh, And I think there would be a lot of nervous people in the party that Anthony Albanese was not making a pragmatic assessment of his capacity to win the campaign. Yeah, and there were a lot of people nervous from the very get-go after winning government about the impact of The Voice on their prospects in government and their performance in government too, I think, foreseeing Mm. the situation we're at now. But there's always this question too, I suppose, of how the nation responds if we vote no. What's going to be the impact of that on Peter Dutton? Is it necessarily positive or will he be the guy who, who damaged reconciliation in this country? I mean, is that to play out too? We can't know yet. But Great question, Jamie. Thank you so much. And Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Send your questions in. We love getting them. We're particularly fond of those voice notes like Jamie gave us there. You can email them to the party room at abc.net.au and we pop that email in the show notes too. So you can send us your questions as soon as you're finished listening to this episode. And remember to follow the party room on the ABC Listen app. That's it for us this week. Again, thanks to Laura. Thank you, Laura, so much for being with us. Thanks, Fran. Anything for a free pineapple decorator, you know me. (laughs) See you, Laura. Bye-bye.